It is our time to stand for the reading of the word, so I invite you to do so just now. Today we are reading from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 58. We've selected for our translation the paraphrase from Eugene Peterson because it does not get any more clear than Eugene Peterson. Isaiah, chapter 58. Shout, a full-throated shout. Hold nothing back. Trumpet blasts shout, that kind of a shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. Face my family, Jacob, with their sins. They're busy, busy, busy at worship, and they love studying all about me. Tell all, to all appearances they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And they love having me on their side. But they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our direction? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice God? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do, it, it won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast that I'm after? A day to show off your humility, to put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting, Israel? Is that a fast God would like? This is the kind of fast that I'm after, God says to Israel, to break the chains of injustice, to get rid of exploitation in the workplace, to free the oppressed, and to cancel the debts. What I'm interested in is seeing you do this. Share your food with the hungry. Invite the homeless poor into your houses and to your tables. Put clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Do this, and the lights will turn on. Your lives will turn around at once. The righteousness will pave your way. The God of glory will secure your passage. Then, when you pray, God will answer. You'll call out for help, and I'll say, here I am. If you get rid of the unfair practices, and if you quit blaming victims, and if you quit gossiping about other people's sins, isn't this a long list, church? If you would quit all of this, if you're generous with the hungry, start giving yourselves to the down and out, your lives will glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight and I will always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a self-watered garden, gurgling spring that never runs dry. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God for this word. You can be seated. You kind of have to take a breath after a scripture reading like that. You ruined my lunch, this college student said. You ruined my lunch. Her name, um, Bethany. 
She's leaving the cafeteria one day, headed to class. It's a quiet, sleepy day on her college campus, and she sees a table and a display out in the lobby. What she can't unsee is the lines, the sentences on the poster that she read, slavery is alive. Bethany said, it was the next sentence, however, that caught me, slavery is alive, rape for profit must be stopped. How do you unsee that, she asked. How do you uninstall that message that's messed with your mind and your meal? Slavery is alive. Rape for profit must be stopped. She wants to purge this message, but something uh, is also pulling her towards the table as she tells the story. She's supposed to go to class, but she finds herself drawn towards this table. Slavery is alive? The volunteer sitting at the table is from the Salvation Army. Bethany says, I'm not sure I'm ready for all of the stories. And the volunteer says, it's okay. Just put your name here, right here. Sign up for the newsletter and we'll stay in touch. And Bethany could do that much that day. Bethany had been reading the prophet Isaiah for almost two years, Isaiah chapter 58. She found this message so soothing that the chains would be broken, that the prophet Isaiah says that God says our chains, will, the chains of injustice will be broken. She took that message personally, her chains of shame, her sins, her doubts, her fears. For almost two years, she read and studied her Bible open as she was a college student. And this message from the prophet Isaiah was healing and soothing to her. Jesus came to break chains and set people free. And she began to walk around the world a little differently and a little taller. It was this day, though, with the Salvation Army representative in the cafeteria that she went back and read Isaiah 58 again and realized this isn't a private message with the prophets proclaiming. This is a community message. This is God's entire people. Shout with a full, open-throated voice. Bethany read the prophet's words with fresh eyes this time. Wait a minute, it isn't just personal and private. Bethany studied a little more. It is the entire nation of Israel gathered and they've been oppressed under Persian rule and life is difficult and some of them are starting to come home to Jerusalem now. Their temple is ruined, their land is ruined, their leaders are ruined, practices are ruined. They are desperate and disappointed and it seems like everything they try to get the attention of their deity, the favor of their Yahweh God, everything they try is useless. This is the story that Bethany begins to read with the children of Israel and the prophet Isaiah. Fasting is supposed to work. Prayer is supposed to work. Showing up together is supposed to work. Offerings are supposed to work. All of these rituals we do, God, if this doesn't get justice out of you, why do we even have a God? Verse one, the people complain to God. And God answers back in three sections. Let me read again and we'll go a little further. These are the answers that come from God. Beginning with verse three. The bottom line on your fast days is your own profit. You drive your employees too hard. You fast at the same time while you're bickering and fighting. You swing a mean mean fist. The kind of fasting you do, it won't get you prayers. They won't get off the ground. You think that's the kind of fast that I'm after? You put on this long pious face and you parade around in black 
I did not wear black today. I thought about it. I've been sitting with this text for the week. You parade around in black. Do you think that's the fast that I want? That's answer number one. Answer number two, beginning with verse five. This is the kind of fast day I'm after, to break the chains of injustice, to get rid of exploitation in the workplace, to free the oppressed, to cancel the debts. What I'm interested in seeing you do is sharing your food with the hungry and inviting the homeless poor right into your homes, putting clothes on the shivering ill-clad, being available to your own families. Please don't miss that sentence in there, being available to our own families. Do this and the lights will turn on and your lives will turn around all at once. Your righteousness will pave the way. Remember, we know now righteousness, that's another word for justice. That's a word for honoring people because they have the image of God imprinted on them. Answer three is in verse nine. If you're generous with the hungry, you start giving yourselves to the down and out. Your lives will begin to glow in the darkness. Your shadowed lives will be bathed in sunlight. I'll always show you where to go. I'll give you a full life in the emptiest of places, firm muscles, strong bones. You'll be like a well-watered garden, a gurgling spring that never drun, runs dry. You'll use the old rubble of your past lives to build anew. You'll rebuild the foundations from out of your past and you'll be known as those who can fix anything. You'll be known as the community that restores old ruins, that rebuilds and renovates and makes the community livable again. This is the word of God through the prophet Isaiah. The people thought they were the victims and they learned they are the victimizers. Along with Micah that we read a couple of weeks ago, every time we think and talk about biblical justice, this passage from the prophet Isaiah usually makes its way into the conversation. We've said in the last two or three weeks now, there are two kinds of justice in the Old Testament. That word righteousness usually means everyday generous living. It's the basic things that we do. We show up and see each other and care for each other. And when we do these basic, generous, everyday acts, we need less of this other kind of justice. The more urgent activism. This is the kind that, that well, next week when the foster family people come out, it's because there are children that don't have homes. It's more urgent appeal next week. If we did this one well we would need less of the urgent response in our world. Based on these two words we've been talking about the last three weeks, we have many, many options around here for the easy, everyday justice kind. I would argue that what happens every week at client services when we feed, what, 100 families or so, that's not superstar behavior, that's regular, required, everyday justice. We're not a special church because we've been doing that 30 years. We're actually faithful Christians, you know? We have lots of those opportunities. Again, there are bins at the door for food for the college students who need just a little more to get them through the last weeks. That's everyday justice. The cards we'll sign after church for the foster graduates, that's actually everyday justice. Now you wanna take one into your home and pay for their tuition at the university, that's a little more this side, right? Urgent. If we take care of the everyday, we have less reason for the active, urgent, the, this urgent kind of activism. And here is God telling the children of Israel, your rituals and your prayers and your practices are self-centered 
and self-seeking if they are divorced from social engagement in the world, period. I don't want them, period. It's a hard word from the prophet this morning. They don't, if you don't end up treating people better, then stop it. You don't need to go through all of the actions if you're not treating people better. You can be known as the community that resurrects other communities, the prophet Isaiah says. You want to be known as that kind of a community? You want to resurrect the other communities? Because there are some options to live attached in this world, engagement in this world. And before this passage is over, the prophet Isaiah mentions the Sabbath. That's a text many of us study during Bible study. If you are careful what you do on your, with your feet on the Sabbath, and if you call the Sabbath a delight, Right? Isn't that something Adventist Christians hear in this book, justice and rescue and restoration and the Sabbath and the promise of God's presence are all wrapped up in one. This is the word from Isaiah. Please hear this morning that Isaiah says, it is not enough for me to cease harming people. Don't harm people would be a good start, right? Thou shalt not kill just means don't kill. It doesn't mean love people really well, right? That's what the prophet Isaiah, please notice that the prophet Isaiah is saying more. It's not enough to cease the activity of harming people. A a couple of weeks ago, I walked out into the parking lot on the backside of the church, and I ran into um, someone in the bushes, in the flowers of the church parking lot. See if you recognize this one soul. This is um, a McKinstry. This is Monty McKinstry. They're cutting bougainvillea. And I come out in the church parking lot. Now look how overgrown they are, right? Right? You might say, I might say, they actually need a little trimming, right? I come out and see them in the bougainvillea, and I say, hey, McKinstries, what are we doing today? Because my car is parked right in front of them. Reuben, give us the next shot, will you? (laughs) Missy's like, what, me? What, me? Give me the next shot, would you? Huh? (laughs) Like, did you just catch us stealing your flowers? Yes, we did just catch you stealing the flowers. Because there's been somebody cutting flowers. Bart's been watching the purple ones by the office. Somebody's just been whacking them off. We don't know why. So I said to the McKinstries, could you sit down? Well, let's just have a little interview right now. Are you whacking the flowers around the church? Is that you? What are we doing? We're harvesting the blossoms because they have a niece graduating and they wanted to make a lace for her to put around. Missy takes them home and sews them and makes these beautiful lays. By the time our conversation was over, Missy said to me, I'm just going to tell you now we have several more graduates. (laughs) Can we just get it out on the table right now? We got several more of these. Oh, you think when the McKinstries serve you breakfast in the cafe, they're being generous. That's their punishment because they steal. (laughs) They steal flowers. I told them to get a better dream. They should reach a little higher. Now, it's not enough to say to the McKinstries, stop stealing the flowers. Like, stop doing that activity. The prophet Isaiah would say that it's not enough to cease doing the damaging activity. We have to go the next step. 
We actually have to do something. Oh, like make something beautiful with the flowers, plant some more flowers, make the world a better place because of the flowers. This is what the prophet Isaiah says. It is not enough to cease the negative activity. We have to take a step further. And some people ask, but wait a minute, pastor, are you sure this is the real mission of the church? People have been asking that question since there were disciples of Jesus. Are you sure this is the real mission of the church to have this active engagement and connection in our world? Because the gospel commission says to preach and to baptize and to make them disciples to the end of the world and then what will happen? And then the end shall come. Are you sure this is what we're supposed to be doing? This is the mission of the church. Throughout Christian history, this will be a tension that gets named again and again. But aren't we the church that preaches the gospel? And then you'll hear a voice from the prophets that says, but aren't we the people engaged in God's world that God loves? On the screen, read this with me this morning. When will Christians really believe that the second coming of Christ is the only answer to this world's problems? What year do you think this is written? This is an Adventist Christian who says this. What year do you think it is written? It turns out that this is said often from our earliest days in the 1840s as we're preparing for Jesus to come. It's not just one thinker or one mind who says something like this. It's many of us. So in the earliest days in the 1840s when we're preparing for Jesus to come, this becomes a conversation. The only thing that will change is Jesus coming. William Miller, Joseph Bates, those early pioneers and leaders, the only possible thing that will fix our world is the second coming of Jesus. Jesus' coming is what they taught. They also said, now, by the way, I'm also an abolitionist. I'm against slavery. So they would go into the homes where people were holding slaves, and they would say this. Um, yes, we're, an ab we're abolitionists, and we've come to get you and your slaves as to getting your slaves from you, we have no such intention. We want to teach you that Christ is coming and we want you all to be saved. That was the opinion of our earliest thinkers. And then we know it did not happen that way in 1844. It's only two weeks after 1844 when Jesus does not return to the earth that William Miller gets a knock on his door and it's a fugitive slave who hands him a letter from a farm 15 miles up the road that says, I didn't know a better place to send this slave on the run but to an Advent home. William Miller, who's been teaching the only way the world will change is the second coming, now has a choice to make, and the slave comes into his house and stays with him. Jesus is coming and. Jesus is coming and. The Adventist Christians decide that being faithful to God and keeping the commandments of Jesus from the book of Revelation also belongs alongside the prophet Micah and the prophet Isaiah. And so it turns out they have decisions to make. And America is toxic and America is on overcharge and especially on the Eastern coast. If we think our country is out of control today, we've been here before. So especially on the East Coast, friends, I wanna show you four or five pictures. These are all denominations that are birthed the same time we are. See if you can guess some of these people. We gave you a clear, clear cue here. These are the Christian scientists. This is the Boston Journal and um, Mary Baker Eddy and thousands of Christian scientists. This denomination is born about the time Adventist Christians are. The next picture. 
Who do you think these are? My husband said, that kind of looks like us. Go to the next one, Reuben, because guess what happens? They all kind of look like us. This is another group. Go to the next one, Reuben. Oh, got that one? That's us. That's a tent meeting. Those are the early Advent Christians in the 1830s and 40s. The next one, Reuben? Mm-hmm. Who would you think these people are? I thought they were the Mormons because of the bicycles. It's a fair guess, because we're all born during the same time period. These are not the Mormons, these are the Jehovah's Witnesses, right? So Reuben, can you back up? Make sure we've got ourselves all identified. That's the Adventists, back one more. These are the Mormons on their way to Utah. Back up one more. These are the Pentecostals. And look there in the middle and you'll see mixed colors of skin with the Pentecostals, and we back up one more. And those are the Christian science monasters. These are all made in America religions. And here's my point today. All of these religions had to make a decision. All of these people faithful to God, faithful to the Jesus, Jesus the teacher, all of them had to make a decision about one important thing happening in America during that time period. What shall we all say about slavery? The American dilemma. And by 1850, when there's a Fugitive Slave Act, that means if you assist that civil disobedience and you'll go to jail. All of these denominations are making decisions about how we will be in the world. So it is when Jesus doesn't return in 1844 that the Adventist believers Take their Bible and open it back up. And keep this picture in your mind as you imagine again William Miller with his door open and a fugitive slave at his door with a letter knowing that he could be pursued by the United States officials, knowing that they can go to jail and reading a letter that says, I can think of no better place to send this family than a Millerite home. The letter says, we know your home will be safe. This week I watched again the documentary with Harriet Tubman on Netflix and I tried to imagine myself as one of these homes and the possibilities of where we hide people under the floor and in the barn and in the food bin and all of the options as they make their way on the Underground Railroad and I tried to imagine courage that comes from Isaiah's message. These are stories, friends, I want to know about my history. This is like Ancestry.com for Adventists. These are the stories that I want us to know and I want our children to know. It turns out the Quakers are the only church that actually completely breaks with the idea of slavery. They release all of their slaves. They take a bold stand. But the rest of these denominations had to make a choice one by one and we didn't all choose the same. I want to know that we had other teachers and leaders come along, like Charles Fitch, who said, slavery is worse than theft and robbery and murder and treason. Fitch that preached that we should come out of churches that don't teach the Sabbath, but we better come out of churches that hold slaves. I want to know that um, they opposed coming to the communion table with anyone who's still holding slaves. Early Adventists. Um, said this during this time period in our country, America has forsaken itself. There is no hope for improvement. 
American freedom and progress is an illusion and Adventist Christians began to see the beast of Revelation 13, the one with the two horns, one like a lamb, like a lamb but speaking like a dragon. We began to identify America of all things with that beast from Revelation 13 as we watched what was happening to people in our country. I wanna know that people like the Millerites took a stand on slavery, that they were arrested at the pulpit for talking about this. Can you imagine someone coming in here today and arresting us for saying we can't treat people that way? I would like to know that they were accused of mixing their Sabbath theology with social activism. I would like to know that all of their homes became places, safe havens for all the social reform conversations. I want to know that the first general conference president, the corporate president of the church, is actually on that underground railroad and he takes slaves into his home also. Isn't that amazing? I want my children to know that. If you've never heard this today, I didn't know these things until I enrolled in university at La Sierra University. That's the first general conference president, and when they knock on his door, he does what all the other quiet workers do on the Underground Railroad. He hides the fugitives on a run. I want to know these things. Ellen White will eventually say in 1862, when the war has begun, the Civil War, that the system of slavery ruined our nation. And the soon to become Adventist Christians, will again write a letter to the President of the United States. They'll send a letter to Abraham Lincoln after the slaves are emancipated, and they will tell the President, you need to make better policies so that these newly freed slaves have opportunities in this country. I want to know that Adventist Christians sent letters like that. I want to know that we took a stand on this issue, friends. So Revelation, yes, but Micah and Isaiah, and that Adventist pioneers preached not only personal salvation, but social transformation. It turns out there doesn't have to be a tension between these two. The Bible is so clear with the Bible open, and so Adventist Christians preaching about salvation also begin to care about things like substance abuse and education and how we treat women and children and health and wellness in our bodies. And we had a thing to say about the war. When Abraham Lincoln was asking us to enlist in the war, needed 75,000 volunteers, Seventh-day Adventist Christians had an opinion about that in the 1860s. We decided, no, we're, we're going to be a church of peace. And every time we talk about this here, I know there's a little bit of tension because it's not the 1860s anymore. So Adventists were encouraged by Ellen White and other leaders, you buy, buy someone to serve in your place. Commutation is what it's called, and the Adventists would be exempt. They decided it would take about $25,000 for just the men of Battle Creek to be released from signing up for the Civil War. Can you imagine? And they raised that much money, and they were encouraged to go into debt and to sell their homes. And don't pay your tithes and your offerings if you need to, because we will be a church of peace. It turns out that that comes up again when we get to the next World War. And that little 2% of Adventist Christians in Germany who decide to stand against war and will not enlist with the rest of the Adventist Christians, those little, that little 2% is disfellowshipped from the church. We remove their membership. We punish them for this. And we attempt to reconcile, but by 1922, there's another little denomination born, the Seventh-day Adventist Reform Movement that still exists today. 
because they refuse to go to war and carry a weapon. We're giving away these books, remember when you leave today, we got a hundred of them, and you might, if these are stories that interest you, about page 77, Charles Scriven talks about this kind of Seventh-day Adventist history, decisions that were made, why we made those decisions, what it's meant for the denomination. Out at the front, when you leave today, we still have more books we can give away. Pick up one of these books and take it home. It's good conversation for the family, church. Charles Scriven says, we were actually a remnant living ahead of our time, living ahead of the majority of people around us. There's more I could say today, but here's what's interesting to me. Somewhere along the way, we stumbled a little, and we got, I think, afraid. By the time Ellen White's son, Willie, takes a steamboat up the Mississippi River, and by the time there's a breakout of violence and gunshot, and by the time, well, there's an accusation, catch this, that Seventh-day Adventist Christians are stirring up social equality. And things kind of quiet down, so that the word from the corporate church becomes, as we get into the 20th century, that we don't really participate in the civil rights, we don't really march because marching and activism isn't really part of the gospel commission. And here comes that tension between are we about personal salvation or are we about social transformation? It turns out that Jesus doesn't come but the slaves are free, aren't they? The slaves are released because of some actions of the president and this nation. And Congress, acts that Congress passed, it turns out, James White says, the Christian really has as much interest in this old world as any other person. Here we must stay and act our part until the Prince of Peace comes to reign. There is so much to say on this topic. Here we now are in 2019. We will have dozens of small choices of how to bring the rhythm of justice and righteousness into our personal and private lives. This week we are naming and remembering Dr. Leonard Bailey who died, Loma Linda, who uh, pioneered this amazing technology to to bring us into a time and an age where we can transplant hearts to children and humans. But in the 80s, in 1984, in 1984 in October, when this was being discussed, we remember it very well because we were new here and Kirby was in medical school and I happened to work on the floor where this very controversial procedure was happening. And out in the front of the medical center were all the reporters and Kirby came wandering down the sidewalk one day and the reporter just put a microphone in front of his mouth and said, what do you think about this very controversial ethical treatment going on upstairs? What do you think about this? We think, he said something like, I am wearing leather shoes and I have on a leather belt. He's very logical, right? working backwards, working into an answer from the backwards. I'm, I guess I'm making a statement about what I think. People had opinions about this, about what healing arts in Loma Linda, what the experimentation that was, we will have dozens of opportunities to, 
Try and imagine what righteousness and justice look like in the world personally and privately. Today I wanna ask about corporately. Isaiah the prophet says, what do you all care about collectively? Where do you all see the injustices in the world? Can you begin to name them? Who's in chains today? Do you care about that? Who's oppressed today? Do you see that? You'll all together have to make a list and then you'll all have to decide together. Here we stand. The church has to speak. I don't know what all the issues will be, friends. I don't know what all the issues will be. I'm learning as I listen to, the, to our church when we get afraid, when we get nervous about a, a, a situation and a, something happening in our world and where the controversy is, we retreat and we say, well, Adventists don't participate in these conversations. We retreat and we say, actually, that's not the real mission of the church. The real mission of the church is to baptize people and to bring them to Jesus. And I want to tell you, that's a false tension that is not in the Bible. We will not be able to back up from the headlines forever. Big headlines in our world this week. Adventist Christians have hosts of opinions. And the corporate headquarters has another opinion that, that could never possibly represent 18 million different people. Tim Keller, the author of one of the books on our reading list, says... You know what we Christians do? We smuggle in to these conversations our core convictions. We kind of smuggle them in. We have opinions on these things, but we kind of smuggle them in. And I want to suggest to us today, church, that we do something a little more humble, but also profound, that when we find ourselves needing to engage in these social conversations, that we walk in the front door of the conversation. I'm a disciple of Jesus, and my story starts with creation, Genesis chapter 1. I cannot harm you in this dialogue, nor can I be silent. I'm part of the church that speaks up. And when people say, Adventist Christians don't really do that, we can say, well, actually, once upon a time, we did. Bethany, the student at the table in the cafeteria, signs her name on a list and allows them to send her literature and she begins to learn the stories one by one of these students. If Bethany Huang could, could, could uh, advise us today, this college student, I think she would say, keep your Bibles open and prepare to hear the full-throated shout from the prophet Isaiah. And with your Bibles open and the spirit moving and the community and the conversation, prepare church to speak and act. Amen.